beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christian folks talking to other white Christian folks about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color or non-Christian folks who may be checking us out about how we're doing. The word is resistance. As I'm writing this, it's a gorgeous sunny day today here after a series of winter storms that moved across the continent. There's a layer of snow on the ground that brightens the light and the sky is clear and fresh. And even though it's cold, later today, we'll go for a walk in our favorite park and soak up some healing energy from the earth and the sky and the sun. That's something we've learned from the locals here about how to be in relationship with the winter. When it's a pretty day, go outside. So we will go outside and move and take some deep breaths after what have been some very challenging weeks for us. Maybe they've been challenging for you too. Certainly every day in this empire collapse is a challenge in so many ways. Even with all the amazing and creative ways folks are finding to resist and to build, it's rough. So I invite you to breathe with me for a moment. Take a moment to feel your breath connected to the breath of other humans and creatures, the breath of the trees, the breath of the wind. Let's breathe together a breath of thanksgiving to the east for air, to the south for fire, to the west for water, to the north for earth. A breath of thanksgiving for the indigenous peoples of these lands, a breath of thanksgiving for sky and sun and moon, A breath of thanksgiving for the ancestors who surround and encourage us. And a deep breath of deep thanksgiving to the divine creator of us all. Amen.
the Sunday's readings are for the Christian observance of transfiguration. The story when Jesus goes up on the mountain with some of his friends and is changed in appearance to be shining and dazzling. This story is told in three of the Gospels and referenced in the second letter of Peter. This year, we get Matthew's version, which goes like this. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. For those of you who may not know, the Revised Common Lectionary that we use for this podcast is a three-year cycle of selected readings, year A, B, and C. We've been doing this podcast long enough now that we've cycled back to where we started, which is the Epiphany season in year A. It's kind of amazing to think we've done a whole lectionary cycle on this podcast since we began in January 2017. That year, I also did a podcast on this story. That episode is called Transfiguring Sanctuary, and I encourage y'all to listen to it because it's still just as timely now as it was then, which honestly is sad. But working on that podcast really changed me because it was the first time I really considered all the violence that was surrounding Jesus during his life. Roman imperial violence against his people, as well as the violence carried out by Rome's hand-picked puppets like Herod. It was the first time I thought deeply about how that violence must have impacted Jesus and his community and the choices they made. How that violence must have impacted how the community tried to tell his and their story in the midst of the violence and in its aftermath after Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 CE. Three years ago, I talked in that podcast about my realization that that violence is the backdrop to the transfiguration story, especially the way Matthew tells it. I won't repeat everything I said then. For that, you can listen to that episode, which I'll be sure to link in the transcript and also share out on social media. I won't repeat everything, but here is a quick review of Matthew's narrative arc that I outlined then. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he goes into the desert where he's tempted by devilish powers. When he returns, the first thing he learns is that John has been arrested and incarcerated by Herod. Jesus responds to this news by starting to organize his people, 
And by chapter eight, they're all doing the work of healing and teaching and community building together. And John is incarcerated all that time. And then in chapter 14, Herod finds out about Jesus. And in response, Herod executes John for doing the same work Jesus is now doing. In the aftermath of that execution, Jesus keeps trying to get away, and his behavior with his community and the people who come to him is strained. He finally says out loud what he th- that he thinks. He finally says out loud that he thinks he will be killed by Rome and its collaborators. At last, he's able to get away up the mountain, and that's where we find ourselves in today's story. The mountaintop experience doesn't come out of nowhere. No, Jesus is traumatized. Here's what I said three years ago. Jesus has been doing the work, running more risk all the time, and now John is assassinated by imperial collaborators? Jesus is now fully aware of what it could cost him to continue his divine work, and I think it troubles him, unsettles him. I think he goes to the mountain with intention. He finally, finally gets away with a few friends, carrying his anguished, grieving heart up to the mountain where no one can get to him. I think Jesus went up the mountain to remind himself who he was, that he had resources, that he was loved. I think he went up the mountain to surround himself with community and especially with the ancestors, Moses the liberator and Elijah the fighter against idolatry, and to hear those words once again from the divine, the same words he heard at his baptism, you are my son, the beloved. You are mine, God says. And only then does Jesus come back down, very clear that what happened to John will happen to him as well. And then, well then, Jesus goes back to work. Three years ago, I went on to talk about what that getting back to work meant for us as white Christians who are too often tempted to build a building and hide away when the going gets rough. Today, I want to talk about what Jesus finds up there on that mountain that helps him keep going. Because I think that we need that too. Aching and probably scared, Jesus goes up the mountain and has an experience that, honestly, we don't entirely know how to explain, other than he's able to come back down again when it's done. He is transfigured, the Greek word there meaning metamorphosis, a changing into something different that's described as shining, as dazzling. And then the ancestors show up, and they and Jesus talk. It's not clear if Jesus called on them or if they simply appeared, knowing. But they are there, the ancestors. Jesus is anguished going up that mountain, troubled. Perhaps he has realized, 
as many of us white folks have realized since January 2017, just how deep the violence and corruption of the system actually goes. Maybe he feels hopeless or wonders if he is enough. Maybe he feels responsible for the safety of his community, the ones taking risks now in his name. He takes three friends with him, but maybe he feels alone. I think that along with the reaffirmation of belovedness that Jesus receives from the divine, the ancestors, Moses and Elijah, also help Jesus get re-grounded in who he is, in where and who he comes from. They help him remember that he is not alone, that there is access to help in times of trouble that runs deep and broad across time and space. The power of the ancestors is a power of love that Herod and Rome cannot get at. And that power is part of what helps Jesus come back down, love his community, and give his all to the movement. The power of the ancestors is love. In her book, Remnants, Memoir of Spirit, Activism, and Mothering, Rosemary Freeney Harding, a black social worker, activist, poet, teacher, healer, mystic, and yes, mother, shares a teaching about death from her own mother. Now don't forget, Rose, there's nothing left but love. That's the most important thing. That's what you need to know. All that remains is love, Rosemary will write later. And this refrain surfaces as a key understanding in which Rosemary roots her work and her vision and she connects that understanding to the role of the ancestors. What we inherit from our ancestors remains with us, she writes, that remnant of peace, of grace that all of us carry. What we inherit from those who came before us, among other things, is a link to the ancestors and ancestral traditions of everybody living in this world we help each other find our way home. Those connections, those ancient connections, are never lost. They are the love that remains. We help each other find our way home. The ancestors showed up for Jesus and helped him find his way home. up the role of the ancestors in this transfiguration story because I do believe the ancestors, our ancestors, all the ancestors are available to us to help us right now in these troubling times where there seem to be six new disasters before breakfast every day. How do we keep going? What do we do when our hearts ache too much to continue? The ancestors are here for us to help us find our way home. In my experience, though, white people often have a complicated relationship with ancestors. 
There's a few reasons for this that I can think of. Maybe you can think of more. Well, I think part of this comes from white Western Christian tradition, where often the only ancestor we're allowed is Jesus. Maybe Mother Mary and some saints in some Christian practices. And calling upon our own blood ancestors for aid and assistance is sometimes seen as folly as, at best and dangerous devilish blasphemy at worst. Even though our own sacred text tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, it seems to me we don't often engage with our ancestors, except perhaps on All Saints Day services. We might name leaders who inspire us, Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dorothy Day, but we don't particularly expect them to show up on the mountain and talk to us until we find our way again. Maybe your experience is different, but that's how it's been for me in the white Christian spaces I've moved in in my lifetime. Another reason, I think, is because in the process of becoming white, we lost who our ancestors were and lost traditional ways of engaging with them, like rituals, for example, or just knowing how they related to the land, the stories and names of places where they lived. Some peoples of Europe have been able to hold on to some pieces of this here in the U.S., but whiteness has caused us so much loss in being able to understand where and who we come from. The last reason I want to talk about is that we white folks have a complicated relationship with ancestors because we don't really know what to do with our own. We don't know what kind of relationship to have with our very own ancestors who did the things we are now hopefully trying to fight against. I think this shows up one way in how fiercely some white folks are attached to symbols like the Confederate flag and statues of Confederate generals Underlying that ferocity of belief that they were heroes, that, that the symbols are just pride in one's heritage, is, I think, a total unknowing of how to relate to ancestors whose decisions we are still living with. If they were terrible, am I terrible too? Therefore, they must be good, otherwise how can I be good? Remember, I'm saying this as part of a family in which five generations of men are named after Robert E. Lee. But I think for more well-intentioned white folk, we have the flip side problem from our cousins holding on to hateful symbols. We also have a total unknowing of how to relate to ancestors whose decisions we are still living with. Both versions of this dynamic are rooted in shame. Shame for what our ancestors did, the choices they made that led to genocide, that enslaved other humans, that lynched and murdered and targeted and bombed, that caged and lied and poisoned land and water. It's like we get only two choices. Either venerate those ancestors or discard them. White supremacy always loves a binary. Rosemary Freeney Harding shares a teaching from one of her own healers that what we inherit from our ancestors remains with us, whether we are conscious of that inheritance or not. And we do remember, perhaps more in the body than in our intellectual awareness, perhaps more in the heart. 
When Harding says, all that remains is love, she is by no means saying that the trauma left behind, the generational wounds and the systems, the choices of our white ancestors put in place and maintained. She is by no means saying those things aren't real, that those experiences don't also exist. She was deeply committed to the deepest kind of healing of those wounds, and reckoning with our complicated ancestors is part of that work. All that remains is love. What she is saying is that all that remains of our ancestors, the remnant of them that is available to us, that is accessible to us, that is actually already surrounding us and encouraging us, is love. A couple of years ago, I was in Nashville, Tennessee for a surge staff meeting. I have ancestors on my daddy's mama's side from Nashville, and so I stayed a couple of extra days to visit the cemeteries that are still on the land where the families settled over the ridge to the south. We had visited one site when I was a teenager, but my memories were vague, and my parents had discovered other sites since then, other cemeteries. I wanted to visit them, my ancestors. I wanted to reckon with them as some of the earliest white settler colonizers in that area at the end of the 18th century, as ancestors of my own who enslaved other humans. I did not know what that reckoning would be like, but it felt like an important piece of my journey. My dear friend Margaret accompanied me on that first long afternoon into twilight visiting ancestors in three cemeteries, two family cemeteries on the homestead lands, and one city cemetery in Nashville. The next day I met up with my cousin Trisha and we visited the closest family one that had been nearly dark when I'd been there the day before. I had all the genealogy charts from my mom and their accounting of their trip to find all these folks, the stories we know and guess at. They were prominent enough families that there are still stories about them you can find. I read their names, traced them on headstones. Sally, Bethenia, John, Joseph, many others. My mom's research is impeccable. And I listened to them. And I talked to them. I told them I wished they hadn't made the choices they did. I told them I was trying to make different choices to make up for the ones they made. I listened to see if they would tell me what they thought of me. And I didn't feel like they disapproved. In fact, the energy all felt so very strangely peaceful and that they were pleased with me. But I wasn't sure if that was just wishful thinking. I left flowers because regardless if I agree with their choices or not, because of them, I am. To be honest, it was an incredibly overwhelming experience and I did not know what to do with the shame I felt. I posted on social media briefly, but made no mention of the family history, posted no photos of the headstones with Confederate army markers on them. This is actually the first time I've talked about it publicly. 
And I can feel the shame sitting heavy behind my sternum. After I got home, I had a long conversation with my parents about the trip and everything I felt and was wrestling with. And I said, it was so overwhelming to stand there in those places in front of these ancestors and wish they had chosen differently and wonder how in the world we got from them to me. Me who is sitting here making this podcast about how to dismantle the things they chose. Not that I have all the answers, but you get what I'm saying. How did that happen? How did I become out of that history? My daddy said, well, all that's left is the love. And that's what got passed on to you. All that remains is love. It doesn't solve everything, but it does give me a different way of being in relationship with those ancestors. If all that remains is love, even of them, enslavers and Indian killers, then I can call on that. I can change my conversation with them. Lately, instead of telling them, I wish you hadn't made those choices, I am now asking them, what would you have me do? And I have this knowing, as Rosemary says, perhaps more in the body than in my intellectual awareness, perhaps more in the heart, that they want me to keep going, that they are encouraging me, that they need this healing, that they want it. In one of their How to Survive the End of the World podcast, Autumn and Adrienne Marie Brown talk with Alexis Pauline Gums about how when we do the work of healing, it is not only for us and the generations to come, but it also heals generations backwards. By engaging with our ancestors in this work, not venerating them and not discarding them, they get access to that healing and we get access to their love. Listen, Moses and Elijah weren't perfect either. Moses had a temper. He argued with God a lot. And sometimes he took off and left his people for weeks on end with no explanation. And Elijah was super stern and did not seem to be able to offer any kind of prophetic action without a lot of people getting killed. They weren't perfect. But the remnant of love that remained showed up for Jesus in a time of trouble, helped him to reground, find himself, and keep going. That same love is available to us, even from our very own blood ancestors. the ancestors is a power of love the empire cannot get at. This is part of why the empire only offers us that binary of veneration or discard, why the empire only offers us different shades of shame. 
It does not benefit the Empire for us to know that we have access to a power they cannot get at. So my call to action for you this week is twofold. First of all, if you're not already, start talking to your own ancestors. Maybe you don't know very much about them, and that's okay. Just ask questions. Tell them about yourself and listen. Maybe you have a photo you want to put in a special place for a while. Maybe you want to light a candle or visit them in a cemetery. Maybe you're ready to call on them for help when things are hard. Or maybe it feels overwhelming, like it was for me. That's okay. Maybe there are ancestors who harmed you that you are not ready to talk to yet, and that's okay too. However you want to start or deepen, it's all okay. Go gently. Ask a good friend to join you. We help each other find our way home. Second, start learning who some of our white movement ancestors are. I've noticed a lot of times in movement spaces, including faith-rooted ones, that when we're asked to name the ancestors, leaders who inspire us, it's almost all people of color we lift up. Martin, Malcolm, Harriet, Oscar Romero. And that's great. That is so amazing that we know these leaders and their stories and the work they have done to heal the world and we refuse to let it be forgotten. And I think it hinders the work for white folks when we don't know that white people have also been in the work too. I think it benefits the empire when we don't know our history. In surge circles, we lift up Anne Braden a lot. But after that, who do we know? So let's start adding the names of white resistance fighters to our lists. Bob Zellner, Florence and Clarence Jordan, Zilphia and Miles Horton, and Jonathan Daniels are just a few. Learn about them, lift them up, call on them when you need help going on. Rosemary Freeney Harding writes about creating ritual spaces that incorporate the quality of spirit that all that remains is love. She says, We have been through so much trauma, so much generational pain, and we are still fighting so many awful injustices built into the structure of our society. We need healing. Our country needs healing. Holding on to angers, to wrongs, becomes a weight on our own bodies and our own spirits, causing a sickness and passing it on to our inheritors. Forgiveness heals not only our personal agonies, but provides a cleansing of the air between us and our so-called enemies and passes on something breathable to our children. Moses and Elijah showed up for Jesus and made life breathable for him again. The fact that we are here, committed to this work, means somehow our ancestors passed on something breathable to us, too. All that remains is love. Now that is transfiguration indeed. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are on this good earth. 
Let us know how your actions go. We always love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. Next week, Grace Aaron will be uh, will have a resistance word for us for February 23rd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.